This episode of the YVR Screen Scene Podcast is brought to you by Fish Flight Entertainment. This episode was sponsored in part by listeners like you. Join our Patreon community and receive early access to episodes, bonus content, stickers, buttons, and more. Visit www.patreon.com slash YVR Screen Scene Podcast. Welcome to the YVR Screen Scene Podcast, where we pull back the curtain and expose the beating heart to the Vancouver film and television industry, namely the actors and filmmakers and other talented artists who do the work. Capital T, capital W. I'm Sabrina Ronnie Firminger, and today, I am delighted to welcome Carmen Pollard to the YVR Screen Scene Podcast. When I think about Carmen, and Carmen, I do think about you quite a bit, I think of a few things. The first thing I think of is For Dear Life, her feature-length documentary that followed Carmen's cousin, Vancouver theatre producer James Pollard, in the three and a half years after his terminal cancer diagnosis. For Dear Life, which screened as part of the 2017 DOXA Documentary Film Festival, wasn't a traditional cancer doc about a brave soul on a life-affirming journey into the great beyond, nor was it a dark narrative about a tragic figure raging against the dying of the light. Instead, it was a conversation starter about a man who lived until he died, which speaks both to the man that James was and the sensitive and skilled documentarian that Carmen is. I also think about Carmen's work as an editor. We don't often get to see who edited a film until the final credits. And I've had these moments where I've been watching a remarkable documentary like Mina Shum's Ninth Floor about that time in 1969 when black students occupied the ninth floor of a building at Sir George Williams University to protest racism and Baljeet Sangra's Because We Are Girls about three South Asian Canadian sisters who bring charges against the relative who molested them as children. And then Carmen's name pops up as the editor. And I'm like, no way, that was Carmen. Of course that was Carmen. Her work as an editor is empathetic and lyrical, and I'm always excited to find out what she's cutting or filming or story consulting on next. Thankfully, we don't have long to wait. Carmen's latest is Militant Mother, a short film that tells the story of a group of mothers from the Raymer Social Housing Project whose children were forced to cross perilous train tracks in order to get to school. After months of advocating for a safe crossing, to no avail. This group of mothers decided to make their voices heard by blockading CN Rail. What? Militant Mother screens online and in cinema at the 2021 Vancouver International Film Festival. And today, I am hoping to get a peek into Carmen's process and specifically the hows and whys of her remarkable work. Carmen Pollard. Hi. Hello, thank you so much for having me. What a wonderful introduction. I need to hear that more often. So, Militant Mother. It's a seven-minute film, and it packs a lot, quite a, a journey into its seven minutes. Where did you discover the story, and specifically, why was this a story that you wanted to tell? Great question. 
Um, so, well, I mean, the inspiration for the film started with the pedestrian bridge that I've been using for 20 years. Oh, you have uh, walked the bridge. Okay. I, I am a, I'm an East Van resident and a commuter cyclist, and that bridge has saved me from being late to a function or to mm-hmm. work so many times. Yeah. Uh, so I've used the bridge to cross intersecting trains when I, when I need to be somewhere. And the trains still run through, you know, along that line multiple times a day. Mm. So um, it's, it's definitely that, that the, the bridge that the stories all of, you know, centered around uh, is still being used every single day and still um, having an impact on our community every single day, which was why, of course, when I learned about the story, I wanted to tell it. I mean, if there's, it's definitely a part of East Vancouver lore without question, mm. but it's amazing how many people still don't know the story. So, so it was probably, oh, it was, it was probably in early 2020 when I noticed this sign that was like a new sign at the um, foot at the entrance of the bridge. And, and, uh, and then I started snooping around and noticed a plaque and, Mm. and became very curious about this history. And of course, looked it up and learned about this extraordinary story of the militant mothers of Raymer and became so, so inspired by all of the themes that it, you know, encompasses as well as just the story itself and how, you know, I, I mentioned earlier, it's, it's like this, this, this story of direct, direct action is actually still having an effect today. Um, And, and to me, that was just, you know, it it made the, it gave me goosebumps when I first read the story. So in terms of, um, you know, why I was so inspired to tell it is, is it just really, it's a story about the power of community mm. and, but it really emphasized the value of direct action mm. and for co- the common good and the importance of being heard and seen. Mm. And it just felt so timely for me. You know, we're all going through this crazy period of in history where, um, you know, a lot of lot of people have been feeling really, you know, helpless mm-hmm. and really, um, you know, there's a thing called you know protest fatigue, and I've certainly been feeling that for for some time. Where, you know, I feel like I've spent my whole life screaming about climate change, and you know, the province is on fire, and you're going like, what? You know, all those marches, all those protests, and for what? Mm-hmm. And so to come across a story where this group of marginalized women who weren't taken seriously, um, you know, saw a need that was like crucial for the community and for the safety of their children and through really smart, direct, organized action actually created, um, you know, like there was change that was measurable that came out of it and quickly. And for me, that just gave me this whole new, you know, it it just gave me hope that I was needing at the time. And, and I wanted to share that with an audience and I wanted to celebrate these women who had done this incredible work. And and some of them are still doing incredible work. Like Jerome. 
Yeah, and these these mothers, they literally put their body on the line. I mean, that was literally that was how they took action and they they stood up to, you know, a giant corporation and affected real change very quickly. Um was there anything in what you learned from speaking with Carolyn uh, and revisiting this history or learning about this history um, that surprised you? Like, I was surprised that a school would be totally fine with little kids running across the track, although maybe I shouldn't have totally been surprised about that. Um, but what about you? What kind of surprises did you encounter? Well, yeah, I mean, the first thing that was sort of mind boggling and also just so typical was the fact that this this social housing project was brand new Hmm. and that train had been running and the school had been around a long time. And this this problem had been occurring for a long time. Like there was, you know, there was a child that lost. I've heard part of their foot. I've heard a toe. but in any case, there had been, um, you know, s- some significant impacts from this issue long before the social housing project was built. So there was, of course, the neighborhood of Strathcona, and the school was serving that neighborhood. But historically, that neighborhood has always um, been comprised of marginalized peoples. Yeah. So the government didn't give a hoot that the, these children had to cross these tracks to get to school. And this had been going on for years and years and years. So fast forward in the early 70s, the city built, you know, the largest social housing project in the city, Mm -hmm. smack dab beside the tracks that, you know, and that are that intersect between the housing project and the school that services that project. And still there was no, you know, there was a lot of planning that was done for that housing project, but not a single thought to how those children would get to school. Mm. So, yeah, I I don't even remember your question. Well, you answered it regardless. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) How would you want people to feel then as the end credits roll on Militant Mother? I want people to feel inspired, you know, just like I did, where it's like, no matter how large or small an issue might be that really matters to you, okay. that, that it is possible to affect change. And, and, and to, you know, it, it, is, it is important to our democracy that our voices are heard and that we protect all, all people in our, you know, in our society, in our community, that, that it's not, you know, there aren't, yeah, I, I just, I mean, as a, as a mother, I, it's interesting, my relationship with time has changed so much since I became a mother five years ago, and I don't have time for as much, and what I do, when I do have, I only have time for what's really important, mm. and I have a lot of fight for what's really important. I have a lot of reason, a lot more reason to fight for what's important. Mm. And I really identified with these these women because I think that that was their case. I mean, most of them were single moms. They were, you know, likely working multiple jobs to make ends meet. None of them had time to be standing on the railway tracks and stopping the train. And 
they found time. They found time to do that for the community, for the safety and the well-being of our most vulnerable members of society. And to me, that is so inspiring. It's like, okay, if there's an issue that needs addressing, it's my duty, it's our duty to to take a stand and to do that work. It's the only way forward. Yeah. We are all militant mothers. We can all be militant mothers. Yeah. Why not? Where does your story start? You know, how did you become this documentarian that tells these kinds of stories? Hmm. Wow. Well, I mean, I was just talking to a friend and colleague last night about, you know, why we got into documentary storytelling. Mm. And, you know, this is a really significant time in documentary storytelling because we're all having conversations about who and why should we tell certain stories, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, what's been consistent for me all along is just a real passion to be involved in sharing stories because stories help us all make sense of our lives, right? So be involved in in storytelling um, that will have an impact and that, that can have an impact and will have an impact on on, uh, you know, not just humans, non-humans and um, the planet at large, right? And so, yeah, I mean, I, 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 love, I love history. Mm. I love um, archives. So I love working on films that, that, that trace our stories back in time and where we can frame things and consider things in a totally different way. Like if you imagine how we're gonna think about and understand this pandemic that we're all living through 20 years from now, it's gonna be way different. I mean, right now we're just, we're in it, right? We're in the mud and we can't really see the forest for the trees. And there's a lot of lessons that we can see. And I think a lot of us are gleaning from this experience, but so much of what we have to learn from this experience, we're not ready to learn yet. And I think in the future, we're gonna see that and we're gonna make these, we're gonna draw certain relationships and certain connections that we couldn't possibly do today. And so, you know, that's one of the reasons why I'm so drawn to historical stories. Mm. Um, sometimes they're hard to make because, you know, there's, there's not always an active story to follow, um, but there's always quite creative ways around that, which is really exciting and um, brings its own set of gifts. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the short answer, why do, why do I make documentaries? Why am I involved in, in documentary filmmaking on various levels? It's because I love story. I, I, and I, and I want to, I want to spend my days and hours um, involved in, in creating a better world. I mean, it sounds so cliche, but it's true. Yeah. What else are we here for? Yeah. You mentioned that there are conversations that are happening in the documentary community about, you know, who gets to tell a story and, and what stories they should be able to tell. What kind of things 
things do you think a documentary filmmaker should ask themselves before they take on a story? You know, and, and you personally, like, are there any stories that you won't tell? Absolutely. Yeah. I would certainly, there's stories that I wouldn't tell myself. I would be very honored to support. Hmm. Um, I think that as a storyteller and as a documentary filmmaker, it's really important that one really considers their connection to that story, hmm. their relationship with that story, their connection to the community that surrounds that story. Um, and it doesn't always have to be, you know, a story about one's own community. It, it can be something that is, is a process of, you know, being really interested in a story and being really inspired or moved by that story and feeling a connection to it based on one's own lived experience, but not necessarily being a part of that community, but taking the time and taking the care of, of meeting with those people or, you know, humans or non-humans once again, and, and spending, spending the time really becoming a part of that community before, before you ask to, to, you know, be a storyteller um, and sharing stories that belong to that community. Yeah. What kind of responsibility do you feel to the subjects of your films? I feel it's interesting. Um, it started for me. Um, well, it started for me as soon as I started making films, but I certainly really experienced this um, process of checking in when I was spending more time editing uh, feature docs with subjects or participants who I had never met, but I had become so close to through the footage and through this material that I'd spent hours and hours and hours with and really like, um, like it, it was like almost like I had created a relationship with a person that had never met me. Mm. <laughs> it's such a strange feeling. And I've certainly had awkward moments out in the world where I've seen, I've run into somebody or I've been introduced to somebody at a festival um, that was the, the subject or a participant in the film. And I've like hugged them or, you know, like really shown way too much affection and way too much understanding of their very personal life. Right. And I had to be like, oh, oh, and then like really backtrack and explain how it is that I know this much about them and how it is that I care this much about them. And one of the things that I often do when I'm questioning ethics around um, representation within the story or, um, you know, and, and there's so much power in editing and you can change the context so easily or you can include something that really maybe shouldn't be included in the film, even though it works for the narrative, it may not be in the best interest of the participant who shared their story to have that bit of, of information in the film or that a bit of their experience that was filmed. Mm -hmm. And I often try and imagine them sitting with me when I'm watching the material and how I would feel if they were right there beside me. And that's usually the, the real clear checklist in terms of, of just really caring for the subject matter and the people 
involved in, in you know who have shared their their life with us as as filmmakers just being really really clear that the way we're presenting um the way we're presenting them is is the way they would want to be presented or the way that they would be comfortable being presented or the way that isn't harmful like how would you characterize your storytelling ethos or perspective or po- point of view and how has it changed you know over the course of your career in documentary hmm. um wow that's a great question i like to have one yeah that's a good one <laughs> um i hope that i've evolved and changed i'd like to think i have i certainly with every film i make or edit i'm always sort of like ready for the next one because i'm like oh i would have done this differently and oh and, and if only we had more time for this and that surprise was wonderful and it led to this wonderful amazing gift but like what about you know what if we could have so things are always evolving but in terms of um how my approach to story has changed um i don't know if it has hmm. you know like i think that i learn as i say i learn with every film and i learn different techniques and i and i mean the one thing that i would say i understand now better than ever is that there's not a whole lot different between documentary and fiction like huh a story is a story is a story and that's where i mean the that's where we get back to our previous conversation where there's ethics that are different for sure and that can affect the storytelling in a significant way and it should but it's really great to bring fiction practices in, into documentary and it's being done more and more all the time right um and the line between truth and fiction is really blurry and gray like you know as much as we all want to think that we're telling the truth and being truthful is really important to me i mean it's sort of the most you know my most cherished trait in a person is 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 honesty and but are you know my sense of truth and your sense of truth might not be the same thing even if we're being completely honest mm. and that's what i kind of love about documentary is is that really like you you could take you know a, a bunch of footage and create almost any story with the same material and and one story may be completely different from the other yeah and i i do i actually when i've taught uh story editing i've used that as a tool so i've brought in sort of like a really mundane uh experience that i've literally just documented and then i'll edit together a short story out of that material and i'll give the same footage to all of the you know all of the students in the class and say okay go away and tell a different story hmm. and they'll all come back and be like that fight there was no fight and i'm like i know i totally manufactured that that all happened in the editing and i created that story and that story didn't actually happen sure the pieces 
that I edited together actually happened. But that's like sort of shows you the horrific power mm. of editing is that you have, you know, an opportunity to create something that isn't actually very truthful at all. And that's storytelling, right? Oh, wow. Thank you for using your power for good and not for evil, Carmen. I, I appreciate that. You mentioned that when you're editing a documentary feature that you, you immerse yourself and you are living and breathing, you know, that content, um, those, that those people, their stories, some of the documentaries that I've mentioned include some incredible trauma and, and heartache. Uh, I'm thinking of, because we are girls specifically, you know, about the Puni sisters, uh, mm -hmm. remarkable women all, um, but who, you know, they, endured incredible pain uh, and then had to revisit and relive that pain, you know, for uh, their court cases as well. Over and over and over. Over and over and over again. And they're warriors, but it, it does take a toll. I know that myself as somebody who has interviewed uh, a lot of people who have experienced trauma, that it, it can take an impact on me and I have my ways of, of dealing with it. But what kind of impact does it have on, on you as a filmmaker when you're immersed in, you know, some very traumatic material? And, you know, what do you think that documentarians can do to protect their mental and emotional health so that they don't get, you know, what many doctors and nurses get like which can be compassion fatigue or you know be triggered in in some way or experience some kind of mental health crisis you know because it's something that journalists experience and you know it's it's something you know that i can imagine that when you are falling in love with and feeling responsibility to people who have trusted you with their story either as an editor or as a filmmaker you know that it can you feel it, you take that, you, you live it with them and it can take a toll. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'm assuming. Yeah. No, no, you've hit on something that's very real and thank you for bringing it up because it's not a conversation that's often had and it's something that actually has deeply affected me, especially recently. Mm. Um, I, have, I have felt, um, you know, frankly, burnt out after I've, I've worked on and, and, and carried a number of stories that deal with trauma um, sort of simultaneously one after another. And there, you know, and I, and I feel like I sort of soldiered along for quite a long time. And then, and then one film in particular really triggered, triggered me and really hit home for me. And um, I had to take a break afterwards. I did. You know, I really felt like, you know, on the one hand, it wasn't something I wanted to talk about because I was looking at subjects of the film and going, what, how, I mean, these remarkable human beings, how they're able to not only have this life experience, but share it and relive it and fight for them, you know, for, for the greater good once again. Yeah. In, in exposing their story and exposing themselves and being vulnerable, like 
just having so much respect for these people, um, but also just having my own human experience with that, you know, in, in, in experiencing um, the process of, of their sharing of the story on some level. So, yeah. And I mean, for me, what the solution was, was, you know, aside from the obvious um, things that we can do for self-care, you know, um, was to really just take a break from that kind of content. Yeah. And I, and I did, I, I made a series for knowledge network on, um, you know, sort of some of the untold stories of music history in, in Vancouver. And they were light, you know, just, wonderful little nuggets that really were not dealing with any of these heavy topics. And, and it's exactly what I needed. And a lot of people were like, wow, that's a real departure for you. You don't usually work on this sort of content. There was people Mm -hmm. that were quite surprised. And I was like, yeah, I needed that departure. (laughs) And it opened up a whole other, you know, area of, interest for me too as a as a storyteller particularly when it comes around to uh, comes to telling history stories so yeah yeah. I love that you did take that break and you did that self-care because it would be awful to lose lose you as that empathetic voice in the documentary world you know like because I think that's what the danger is that you lose, not just, you know, your mental well-being, obviously your mental emotional well-being, that's important, but also the, the empathetic gaze, you know, that you bring to the work, you know, that makes the work so special, but it's almost like, I don't know, it's just like what a lot of journalists and, and other documentary storytellers face, right? It's, it's, you know, you, you care so much, but it's possible to care to the point of hurting yourself. So, um, Mm. What do you think is the biggest challenge you faced in your documentary career? And how have you overcome it? I'm assuming you've overcome it. I hope you've overcome it. If not, we are rooting for you, Carmen. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, I certainly haven't overcome all of my challenges or barriers, but um, I've found some new uh, pathways through, you know, mm-hmm. and some of it is external and some of it, some of it is internal. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's what we have the most control over is what's internal. Hopefully, hopefully, um, not to say it's easy, mm-hmm. <laughs> but it's, it's possible. Um, you know, I mean, there's all sorts of obvious challenges documentary is more popular than it's ever been, but it's still really hard to sustain a basic living wage as a documentary filmmaker. And um, frankly, you know, most people who can have a career as a a documentary filmmaker come from a place of privilege because Mm. it, it is so hard to sustain a career. Um. And that needs to change, right? Because we need more voices um, who are given the opportunity to have, you know, uh, lengthy, strong careers. And we need, well, we need to hear those stories, right? So, but I mean, as a woman, obviously of my generation, it's, there's, you know, there's more and more doors opening, but 
um, there was a time where I felt like there was a bit of a glass ceiling that I was constantly having to bang against. Um, some, some people are better at that than others. Mm. You know, it's certainly not my strength. Um, mm. But you persevere and you find role models and you, you know, you just keep, keep at it. Um, but yeah, I, I can't really think of anything else. I mean, I just, I wish I had more time. I wish I had more, you know, money. I wish I had more energy, all of those things, because there's a million stories I'd love to tell or be involved with the telling. Um, but, but I feel really grateful. I feel, you know, extremely grateful for my career so far. And I can't wait to, you know, continue to make films. Uh, so, Carmen, can you, what can you tell us about uh, Militant Mother screening at VIF? Um, it's both online and in cinema, am I correct? So, yes, I am extremely grateful and extremely excited to bring Militant Mother home to Vancouver for our first Vancouver screening. Um, I've just recently dropped it out into the world, you know, the Raymer world, and people are excited. There's, I've had, you know, children of the children reach out and say, I really want to see this. Yay. And, you know, not all of the mothers are still around, mm -hmm. and they all are seniors now. So um, they have, as I say, all their children have grown up, all the children have of this story are, are adults with children. So wow. there's, a, there's a lot of people who are really excited about it. Um, I wish we weren't in a pandemic because not everyone wants to go out. But if you do, um, I'm certain VIF has all of the safety protocols in place. And there are two in-person screenings at the Annex Theatre. Yay! One is on Tuesday, October 5th at 9 p.m., and the other is on Wednesday, October 6th at 4 p.m. And I will be at both screenings and I would love to see you out there. Anyone, everyone, please come out and support VIF. Oh, I have missed going to the theater. I have missed the conversations and the reunions that happen in lobbies after screenings. I cannot wait. And I will have links to both the uh, online streaming option uh, as well as ticket link for the in-person screenings uh, in the footnotes for this episode. Oh, and can I also just give a big shout out to Hot Docs for commissioning this film. It was part of a series of eight films um, and the series is called Citizen Minutes and um, oh. they have a website and if you're interested in seeing some of the other films are great great little series and I'm so you know I'm just so absolutely thankful that I got to be a part of of that project fantastic and I will have a link to the citizen minute site as well in the footnotes for this episode Carmen thank you so so much for joining us today uh, and please come back again because I feel like we have a lot more that we have to talk about please like subscribe Leave us a review if you are so inclined. You can find us at www.yvrscreenscene.com. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram at YVRScreenScene. The YVR Screen Scene podcast is hosted and executive produced by me, Sabrina Ronnie Furminger, and it's edited by Simon Furminger. Special thanks to Mariana Furminger for recording our Patreon ad. 
to Paul Furminger for technical support, and to Dane, not Furminger Devolet, poor, poor, but ridiculously talented, not Furminger Dane, for the original music. Web Your Screen Scene is a division of Fish Flight Entertainment. Join us next time for another deep dive into Vancouver's dynamic film and television scene. And cut! This ad begins with a story about an important but largely forgotten piece of Hollywood North history, the fish flight. In the 1980s, the fish flight was an early morning flight from Vancouver that delivered fresh fish to Los Angeles before the start of the business day. These were the early days of Hollywood North before digital deliveries and fast transfer speeds, and the pioneers of the Vancouver film industry began loading up the fish flight with film reels so Hollywood execs could review the footage shot on the previous day. The fish flight was also one of the building blocks of the visual effects and animation mecca that is present-day Vancouver. And Fish Flight Entertainment builds on this legacy. Fish Flight Entertainment serves the games, film, and television industries. We remember the days of the fish flight and attack our projects with the same passion as those pioneering days of yore. We believe in jumping off the cliff and building our wings on the way down. And who knows? That old fish with improvised wings may even fly. Learn more about Fish Flight Entertainment at fishflightentertainment.com. That's fishflightentertainment.com.